Fantastic. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 2 in a moment. Um, but while you're flipping there, um, one other thing I just wanted to quickly mention is we had our AGM on Thursday night, and thanks to everyone who came out. Uh, it was a great night together, uh, looking at last year's finances and doing some council nominations. Uh, and one of the things that um, happened at the AGM, and it's a, it's a bittersweet moment, is that we had to say goodbye to Glenn uh, from church council. He's been serving on church council for um, as long as it's been church council, since its beginning, and before that on the diaconate. Uh, for 20 years he's served on our board and diaconate church council, or more than that, uh, and he has been like a, a rock. He's like the glue that has held uh, a lot of us together. Um, and just a, a constant uh, source of wisdom, uh, source of just leadership and, um, and love and grace in all that he does. And uh, he started on church council when he was probably about eight years old or something, yeah. Uh, but part of our uh, constitution states that uh, no member of church council can do more than seven consecutive years. And so uh, it's not because he's spat the dummy, it's not because we've kicked him out, it's not because he's even leaving the church. It's just a an end of an era, and uh, who knows what the future might hold. But I just wanted to take a moment to really thank and honour Glenn uh, and Alexis for the sacrifice that they've both made in the family uh, of lots of uh, evenings and lots of late-night uh, work, uh, emails, finances, bill paying. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, he's done so much, and uh, we are super grateful for him. And so I just want to take a moment to, to thank Glenn. We've got a little gift here on behalf of the leadership teams uh, that have come together to put you... Uh, give you a little gift. So, yeah, can we give Glenn a hand and just say thank you? And make sure you say thanks to Glenn and, and all the members of Church Council. They do a lot of work behind the scenes. Uh, and we get to welcome Kira Lee onto Church Council for the next season, which is super exciting. Fantastic. All right. So, we're going to be in John chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. We are in week five of our John series, um, if you've been paying attention. And I'm going to read... The, we're going to, I'm going to try to keep it relatively brief because we've got lots of things happening. And, um, and at the end of the service, kids, I, I, I know that you've been learning a song. Um, what's it called? By Faith. Yeah, so at the end of the service, all the kids are going to get up and give us a bit of energy to finish our service. So make sure you're warming up your vocals, your dance moves, your... Whatever you need to do, try to drag your parents down as well. That'd be great. Let's read John chapter 2. It says this, On the third day, a wedding. Oh, oh, okay, that was just for the kids, just to make sure they're paying attention. They know what's going on now. Took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. That's some 75 to 125 litres. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it, was, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom 
and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. And Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, they went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and stayed there for only a few days. So, Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that it's able to, to teach us and encourage us and change us, and we pray that it might do those things this morning. Uh, we thank you for our kids, we thank you for our campuses, and we thank you for everyone in the room this morning. We pray that you might unify us together around your word and around your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been to a more fancy restaurant. Um, I know it's not a... a there's not too many in sale that you might call super fancy, although you might call McDonald's pretty fancy. Um, but it seems to be, doesn't it, that the more expensive a restaurant, the less food you get on the plate. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's just like, look how much you don't get for how much you're giving us. Um, someone's making a lot of money, I imagine, on those restaurants. Um, but the more expensive, the less food you get. Um, and, or if you go to, um, and, and you're always like, need to do a Macca's run after or uh, something, don't you? Just to actually have some dinner. I was at a dinner Friday night and um, for the, oh, I shouldn't say that actually, for the Baptist Union anyway, the meals were small and I was joking to the person next to you, that was a nice entree, wasn't it? Um, let's, let's go get some real food now. Um, or you go to a party and it's like, it's, for, it's at a dinner time or a lunch time and they say it's going to be finger food. And you're like, oh no. <laughs> no, and that means it's just like little bits. And it feels like you've never had enough. It's just like, uh, and then it runs out. And then maybe that's just me. Um, and it's no good when you're, uh, especially if you're hosting a dinner party or a, a lunch, or, and this doesn't happen today uh, at our lunch, where you run out of food or you run out of, of drinks. And, and that's sort of what's happening in this story today is that it's just like Jesus is stumbled upon a bit of a catering disaster. Uh, he's come to this wedding and in these times the weddings would have gone for days, maybe the third day, uh, there's a bit of debate on what that means in in the first verse there, maybe it's the third day of the wedding. Um, But anyway, there's there's a catastrophe because they've run out of wine and in these times every celebration, uh, much like probably our Australian culture, had wine, uh, had something to drink and um, and when they ran out, it was a huge deal for the bride and the bridegroom and the families involved that were supposed to be hosting and catering for that party. Uh, it was a shame and honour culture, and so that would have brought a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment for a long time, perhaps, on these families. And so it was, a, for us, maybe not such a big deal, but for them, maybe a little bit big of a deal, but in the scheme of eternity, we could probably all say, not that big of a deal. And it's interesting that this is Jesus' first sign isn't it? It's a weird one that he would choose to engage in this. Uh, And so this is, like John says, the first sign. And in John's gospel, we know that there's seven signs that he gives. uh, And this is the first of those seven. And a sign is more than a miracle. It's not less than a miracle, but it's more than a miracle because a sign points to something. A sign is is more than just its uh, intent for what it does in that moment. But John records it and Jesus performs it so that we might see something greater, uh, so that we might see something more significant than just a fix to a catering problem. Uh, a, a miracle in itself invokes awe and demonstrates power, and a sign reveals something else, something that is otherwise hidden. 
And then John in verse 11 tells us that this reveals his glory and it causes his disciples to believe in him. I mean, it's, I don't know, when you first read this story, it's like, oh, I don't know if I would believe in Jesus as the Son of God by like a magic trick of turning water to wine. Um, But we'll see maybe why. Um, The first sign, it's not someone being raised from the dead, it's not a healing but just a catering solution, so why? So I want to look at the, the three components of this, and you might have already picked up on what those three components are. They all start with W. The first one is the woman, Jesus and his mother. So Jesus' mother notices a problem. She sees the shame and the embarrassment that are upon the bridegroom and uh, the bride, and this was, a, like I said, a shame on a culture, and this catering disaster could spell an enormous period of shame for the families. And maybe right from the start, this is just a simple takeaway, if this is all you get from this morning's message, maybe this is it. Um, what do you notice when you're around uh, different areas of your life, maybe at work, maybe amongst friends, maybe amongst family, what do you notice and then what do you do about it? What is the Spirit showing you and what is your obedience to what you see? And it might be as simple as a catering problem. People are hungry, people are thirsty, I could do something about that. I could help out in this area. It might be loneliness or grief or any number of things. And when you see a problem, I think uh, uh, more often than not, that's a Spirit showing us something that He wants us to do something about. He wants us to participate in bringing about a solution. And so this is what Mary does. She sees something and she says, that's a problem. I can see this is going to be a problem. I reckon I can, through my um, God's son, I reckon I can have a solution for this. And so he goes, I mean, Mary goes to Jesus and says, son, they've got a problem here. Can you fix it? Can you fix it? And um, it's... It's an interesting response that Jesus gives, isn't it? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this, how does this concern us, is basically what he's saying. How does this concern us? My hour has not yet come. We'll come back to that phrase in a minute. But kids in the room, sometimes mum and dad ask you to do things and you think, what's that got to do with me? Why do I have to do that? But notice, what what does Jesus do? He obeys his mum. So there's something in there for, for all of us. Even when you can't see, and I'm, Jesus did see the purpose, but even when it's like, this does not concern us, but my mum's asking me to do that, I'm going to do it anyway. Sometimes it's not easy, but even Jesus obeyed his mum, even when the request wasn't really his problem. He didn't cause the problem. It wasn't his catering mistake. And for all of us, when we get asked by something of us in someone on authority, and this is sort of a scriptural idea, is that uh, sometimes we can not want to do it. We can say, I don't see the purpose in that. I don't want to do that. But the kingdom way is that we honour and we submit to those in authority. Um, It's part of the kingdom way. And so Jesus' mom says, come on, let's fix this problem. And Jesus gives that response. What does this have to do with me? Uh, My hour's not yet come. And then Jesus' mum just says, all right, do whatever he says. It's like, it's like that was a yes. What Jesus just said, he meant yes, I will do that. 
<laughs> it's a classic mother statement, isn't it? <laughs> Do whatever he tells you. Um, and I think that's an important uh, phrase that, he, that she gave to the head waiter and to the servants there because what Jesus asked them to do would have made no sense. He says, go take the six jars there and go fill them with water, fill them to the brim. And so you could imagine the waiters and the, the head waiter going, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Let's not worry about that. But Jesus' mother knew, do whatever he tells you. And I think... Again, if there's a, a, an application here from this interaction, it's this, that sometimes what God asks us to do does not make sense. We cannot see the end outcome, but he can. Sometimes the things that we see in Scripture don't make sense to obey all the time. But God has a way of pulling it all together and working a miracle. And so do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. When it makes no sense and when you can't see the outcome, do whatever he tells you. And the second W we're going to look at is the wedding, the wedding itself. Third day of the wedding, as I mentioned, perhaps a big deal. I remember being um, a few years ago in, in China while we got um, to go to a wedding that was the seventh day of the wedding festival. It was a big deal, it's just like... Do you think big weddings are a big deal in Australian culture? I mean, Jewish culture, first century, in other cultures, weddings are a massive deal. They're a festival. And Jesus wants us to see something in the celebration and the magnitude of the celebration of what he is doing his first sign for. It's a big deal, a, a, a festival of celebration. Immense amounts of joy and happiness and, um, and community and, and so much is going on. And Jesus says, uh, when, when Mary says, uh, turn the water into wine or, or fix this problem, he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And it's a strange thing to say. And, and he, he can't have meant it's not time for him to do a miracle. That can't be what he means because he goes on and does the miracle. It can't mean that it's not my time to do a miracle. And when you read through the Gospel of John, we're going to see this phrase, my hour, or the hour, time and again. And every single time it's mentioned in John's Gospel, it is referring to one thing. His hour is the hour of his death. And so when he is saying, my hour has not yet come, he's thinking of a completely different wedding. He's thinking of a different celebration. He's thinking of a different moment of joy. He's thinking of a different time. Maybe you've been to a wedding before and, um, and if you're single and you're not married and you're at a wedding, sometimes you can think about my wedding. When's my wedding going to be? And this is what Jesus was thinking about. When's, what's going to happen at my wedding? What's going to happen at the ultimate wedding? In verse 8 and 9, he says, Now draw out some water, take it to the head waiter. And they did. And the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine. He did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And so he called the groom. And so in the wedding that's to come, in the sign that this is pointing to, Jesus is the head waiter and he's the groom that is to come. Isaiah 25, 6-8 says this. He says, but here... And this is the message translation, just the picture this brings to us. But here on this mountain... The God of the angel armies will throw a feast for all people of the world, a feast of the finest foods 
a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts. Doesn't that sound good? (laughs) Everyone's just like, oh, invite me. You are. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all the peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish death forever. And God will wipe away the tears from every face. He will remove every sign of disgrace from his people wherever they are. Yes, God says so. What a picture. What a picture of celebration. And Jesus is thinking about this festival of joy, this festival of celebration, this joyous occasion where death will be wiped away forever, where sin will be no more, where separation between the bride and the bridegroom will be reconciled once and for all. And the bride, of course, that he's talking about is you and I, is the church, the people of God. It's the people of God. He's looking forward to that time, and the time is now, where the bridegroom will look with with joy, with amazement at how beautiful the bride is. The hour of his death would pave a way for us, the bride, to walk towards him. And his response will be, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? And sometimes we can think, that's not, that's not us though, Brad. But that's the beauty of what Jesus does on the cross. He wipes away every blemish, every sin. You know, when I've done a few weddings I'm a, um, as, a, as, a, as a pastor, and one of the things you get to see is the bride walking down the aisle to the groom, and every time it's just this wonder and amazement, especially from, from the groom and the best man, it's just like, look at her, she's beautiful. Now, in reality, she is beautiful, but I mean, that moment, she's like the most beautiful. It's, and this is across just about every culture in the world that the bride and that celebration of the wedding, there's just like jewels and dresses and time and effort and gone into that moment of like, this is a beautiful moment and this is why Jesus is talking about the bride in this moment. She's going to be beautiful. She's going to be beautiful and that's us. And this significance of the wedding story is to help us to see that what Jesus desires for you and for me is not just a king-subject relationship. It's not just a shepherd-sheep relationship but a husband and wife one too. An intimate relationship, full of love, full of service, full of adoration, full of communication. But what also significant celebration. It's not just like, I've got to do this because I've a question. It's not supposed to be a moment of dreadful experience, but a joy-filled one. And just as, as an aside as well, you know, throughout the Bible... Um, the imagery of bride and bridegroom is constantly one of the ways in which our relationship with God works. There's different ways in which, um, or metaphors or um, relationships that uh, God gives us, like king and subject or shepherd and sheep, bride and bridegroom, help us see what it is to relate. Among others, it says marriage is between a man and a woman. It's because the imagery of bride and bridegroom is, is set up like everything in creation. It all points to Jesus. It's all created for him, through him. Colossians 1 tells us that. John 1 tells us that. And so when you see a farmer scattering seed, 
God in his foresight goes, I'm going to create a seed that show people what's the gospel. I'm going to create marriage to be like this so they can see a little bit of what relationship's going to be like. I'm going to create kings and rulers so they can see a little bit of what that relationship's going to be like. And you've got to see that everything creates. Nothing is just like... And just because we can't understand its purpose, God, in, uh, in his foresight, uses all of his creation to point to his glory and to point to it, to point to his goodness. And the third thing that we'll look at, what, was, what that word means, it literally means drunk or intoxicated, the inferior. And pause here for a second. This is a, I, I, don't, I don't have the answer to this question, but this is something that we talked about at our small group on, on Tuesday night, because I knew I was preaching on this passage. Is, uh, it's interesting to me that Jesus provides to a party where people are already drunk. Like that, there's a lot of tension in that for me, as a Christian, as a believer, uh, where the word says, don't get drunk on wine, and then Jesus is saying, here's some more. Anyway, I don't have the answer to that conundrum, but I just think it's interesting that the... The way in which Jesus interacts with people is, is more than just getting them to act morally right, isn't it? There's something in that moment that he is trying to connect and trying to show them love and, try, and, and, and he's not necessarily condoning their behaviour, but he's doing something to connect with them, isn't he? Um, so after people are drunk, the inferior, but, uh, but you have kept the fine wine until now. And what Jesus is showing us, what the sign is, is this, that I'm bringing a new way, a better way than the previous. The way that you've seen, you know, the, um, the Jewish ceremonial jars were used to, to uh, ceremonially wash people as they would enter into the presence of God. It was just like a symbol of this is washing away our sin. And so he's, he's pointing and he's using these stone jars on purpose to show us this is the way it used to happen. This is the way you used to have to live to a certain standard. You used to have to try to obey this law and keep it and keep all these rituals and keep all these religious statutes. But I'm showing you there's a better way. When my hour comes, when I'm on that cross and my blood, which is the wine, when it pours for you, you are cleansed forever. It is way better. It is far superior. And the joy you've experienced so far in relationship with me is nothing compared to the joy that will come when I'm on that cross. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, it gives us a bit more context and a bit more insight into what he was thinking. The joy set before him, this celebration of reconciliation. The cleansing jars, as I said, to ceremonially wash the Jews before entering the presence of God. And this cleansing, this celebration he's talking about is a one-time deal. Once and for all, sins are washed away. And the other thing I noticed about the wine is it's excessive, isn't it? It's excessive. We're talking five to six hundred litres of wine on top of what they've already consumed. I mean, I don't care what sort of party you're at. Five, a normal bottle of wine is what, like 700 mils, which is 0.7 of a litre for those that aren't, that aren't great at maths. And so five to six hundred bottles, five hundred, six hundred litres of wine is, I don't know, nearly a thousand bottles of wine. <laughs> like it is a lot. It's excessive. And you'll see through John's gospel that there are moments where it is a lot. It's excessive. Like the fish and the loaves, like there is an excess. And the woman at the well, he talks about this water that never runs dry, like excessive amount of water. 
the idea that it's not supposed to just fill us, but it's supposed to overflow. It's supposed to affect the people around us. And if you've ever seen someone drunk and then having more, it affects the people around them. There's no way about it. The excess that Jesus brings, what Jesus offers you and me is more than enough. Whatever you have faced and whatever uh, shame or sin you find yourself in, the grace of God is more than enough. It's more than enough. The love that he has is more than enough. And there's so much happening in this story. There's so much. You, I mean, we could do a five-week. There's so much in there, and I encourage you to, to study. This first sign is, is um, important in so many ways. But this is the bottom line. That the groom at this wedding messed up. He didn't provide enough for what he needed. The wine ran out. His catering fell short. But Jesus steps in to bring the best wine at the right time. And the groom, he gets the credit. The head waiter says, look, um, in verse 10, he goes, he told him to to the groom, Everyone brings out the fine wine first, but after people are drunk and then the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine till now. Like, this is on you. You've done it. Well done. Isn't it like Jesus is just like slipped away to the background by now, and the groom is getting all the credit for the for Jesus' work. And this is how the gospel works: is that all our efforts fall short, all our work, all our tryings, everything we do, it all falls short, and it empties. It's emptied. And then Jesus says, here, have the good stuff. Have me. And then we get the credit for Jesus' death on the cross. He credits his righteousness to us, his perfection to us. And we get to walk and and join back in with the celebration, the festival of joy because of what Jesus did, not because we just turned up at the right time, but because he's done something for us that we could never do. And this is what Jesus offers you. Come and admit that you don't have what it takes. And let me fill you with the joy. Let me fill you with the life that I have. Everlasting joy. And let's feast together. Let's walk together. Let's have relationship together. What an invitation. What an invitation. And so my challenge for you this morning is, will you come and empty yourself again? Will you come and say, what I can bring, Jesus, is inferior to what you bring. The joy that I try to bring into my own life through experience and through money and through success and fame or whatever it is, it's inferior to the joy that you can bring. Will you fill me with your joy again? Because he wants to. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship one more time. So if the band could come up, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And we thank you that you are a God who wants to bring that festival joy, that celebration, that the death is no longer, the tears are wiped away, that sin is no more, and that the bride and the bridegroom have been united forever. And God, we look forward to that day and that moment. And we celebrate it in this one. God, for those of us here who feel like we fall short, God, I pray that you would help us to see that that's the point, that only you can bring the joy, only you can bring salvation, only you can bring the grace that we need. 
And God, we come before you, emptied of ourselves, to receive what you have, to celebrate with you. We honor you and we love you so much. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's stand and let's worship together.